I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training, and I kind of had a long story into how I got into all of this, but in short, I had a few experiences that I couldn't explain with science. And so normally I would just ignore that and uh, live in cognitive dissonance, but then I think enough of them piled up. And I think I was also, I was having kind of an existential crisis at the time. And it, I just thought, what if I thought about this or explored it a little bit? Um, and then one thing led to another and I couldn't stop exploring <laughs> about like everything about mm-hmm. it. So I got really into it um, to kind of reconcile like my experiences with my scientific training. Mm. I think, you know, regardless of what your background is, once you really get opened to these questions something that seems so simple you know is consciousness a process of the brain or whatever starting with a simple concept like that you don't realize how many different aspects of life and creation Mm -hmm. and the universe as a whole that encompasses because then suddenly what does that mean about who i am what does that mean about matter what does that mean about the fabric of the universe and it all ties in and yeah Mm -hmm. it, it gets very uh it opens up very many questions that you don't even consider there being in the first place so i suppose Let's start with those some of those experiences, if you're happy to share those. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I was younger, I had precognitive dreams a lot, but I, you know, they were not super frequent. Um, so I kind of ignored them. And then when I went into graduate school, I think at the beginning of graduate school, I was interested in like coincidences and I felt very, I would never have called it this, but I felt very connected and in the flow with the universe. Um, but I didn't think about it. I didn't think that it was spiritual. I didn't really, it was just my experience. But then by the end of graduate school, especially in neuroscience, they train you that the brain looks for coincidences, that there's no external meaning in the world that we create meaning, um, through our brains. So by the end of that training, a lot of the I guess wonder and magic that I may have felt (laughs) in life was kind of snuffed out. Um, And then also my, I'm Persian. So my, in our, our culture is actually pretty uh, mystical, like indigenously we're Zoroastrian. So there's a lot of mysticism that runs through it. And we have some rituals and practices that still carry over to today. So my grandmother used to do divination using, um, coffee grinds like not american coffee it's turkish armenian uh greek coffee where you leave the grinds in the Mm. cup and it forms pictures and she taught my mother how to do that and so my mom would always read at family parties um and i didn't even know what it was or what was going on and then she started reading for me and when i was in graduate school and i would go home on the weekends and then i ignored it at first but i would take notes and i noticed that what she said would come true and sometimes months in advance or like she would keep saying something and then it would happen and it would be things that I wouldn't know are coming. She wouldn't know like things that were just out of the purview of either of our experiences. And then suddenly it would be there. And so then that caught my attention and I just took notes for years and years. Um, and I lived in cognitive dissonance cause I couldn't obviously explain it with science there. Like there wasn't even a framework to try to explain it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't bother. I just was like, I don't know what this is or how it works, but it seems to work. So if she would say something, I would, 
you know, kind of pay attention to it. Um, like if she's like, make sure you don't lose money or things like that. And then, um, and then there was a, a time over the course of a few years where two of my, my moms, um, saw two events that happened in my life, like in the coffee, um, months before they happened. And I think because they were really big emotional events. So one was like, uh, the murder of someone I knew at my university. And then, um, the second was the ending of a relationship. I think because they were emotional events, they really shook me because mm-hmm. like up to that point, they had been casual day-to-day things. But then um, the first one was a life or death thing. And that really shook me. And then uh, the second one was a relationship. And so uh, at that point, I was also hitting, like I was way out of grad school at that point kind of just living, working and starting to ask, like, what is the point of all this? Mm -hmm. Kind of having an existential crisis. So all of those things together, it was kind of over the course of a few years, but started to get my interest, right? Like, so after um, the relationship ended, I was, and my my mom, like it related to the coffee, she had kind of, you know, seen a lot of details. I kind of had a crisis, like a (laughs) total, not just, I was already having an existential crisis and then it turned into a crisis of, I don't understand what the universe is and how it works and um, why we're here. And so then I, I, I mean, for a while I was just not doing well. Like I was confused and felt like despair and um, because of the confusion. So that went on for a while, but then eventually I started to get curious about the readings and about the universe. And then that launched me on this um, kind of this different path of of exploring because I was curious to just understand because it felt so uh, amorphous, Mm -hmm. like just, yeah, I felt unmoored and and the whole thing felt amorphous, like I couldn't uh, understand. And so it got to a point where I couldn't exist in that state anymore. Mm. So I had to do something about it. And so that caused me to explore. Mm-hmm. So what I'd imagine, have you shared kind of these experiences with some of your neuroscientific colleagues before? And, and what kind of responses have they given in their explanations of that? Yeah. So uh, when I started the project, it was a personal project just for me. It was to interview intuitives and mystics and um, scientists because I started to entertain these ideas and then I thought am I crazy and am I the only scientist who like am I the only one who's dumb enough to fall for this Mm -hmm. so I started interviewing my colleagues that I'd known for you know like at that point over a decade and we had never talked about anything spiritual or paranormal or anything Um, and so that was kind of the point was to talk to them about this stuff and be like and I, so I told them this, you know, my story about the coffee and and everything. And um, they were all the ones I spoke to, which was, again, it was a personal project. So at the time, the beginning of this, it was just a handful of them. But they were very, they all had their own experiences. So that surprised me. Like they would start telling me stories, um, whether it was themselves or people in their lives. Like one of them, uh, his 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 it was his mother um also was very i guess you would call it psychic or whatever but she would have all these experiences and he was he would tell me he's like it was it's weird you know but she was usually right like about whatever she would say um 
And so it just turned out that they were all, they all had their own experiences and they were all much more open than I thought they would be. Um, and of course these were private conversations mm -hmm. that we were having. So they were just like, you know, we don't know everything in science. Like if there's even one case of something, then, then it's an anomaly, but it doesn't mean that it does it didn't yeah. happen or it doesn't exist. Yeah. Like it, it just means that if we can't explain it, then our models are not correct. So we were, and they were, some of them were much more open to mystery. I think at that point I was very much like, no, I have to understand. And like, I could not accept that something <laughs> would be a mystery. And some of them were very like lazy fair about it. They were just like, I don't know. We just, we probably won't be able to know everything. And there's a lot of mysteries in the universe and they were just okay with it. And I was like, how can you just be okay with mm -hmm. it? But <laughs> it was, it was educational to see that they, I mean, none of them, maybe only one of them, there was one colleague I spoke to who was just very skeptical and who was like, but even he had looked into this stuff. Like even he at some point had been interested in it and had explored it. He, he came away skeptical, but most of the other ones um, were, I wouldn't say they were, they were open, you know, I don't know if they would have been that open if we had those conversations in public, <laughs> but they were, but they were, um, yeah, we were, we were open and we just thought these are, some of them even told me, they're like, this is partly why I went into neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Like I'm interested in philosophy and the nature of the universe and decided neuroscience was a good way to pursue that academically. Sure. So that was pretty, it was pretty interesting. Mm. And of course, neuroscience is kind of at the core of everything because that is at the core of our current understandings of, of ourselves, you know, and it's a very widely, I think, miss understood belief that the scientists of, of neuroscience and neurochemistry etc already know that consciousness is produced by the brain you know and that's an assumption it is and that we make it's certainly mm -hmm. as far as i can see not the case at all you know? <laughs> yeah we tend to um so when i went on this journey before i encountered the um because the thing is that what you just mentioned is an invisible assumption that we make in the sciences and especially in neuroscience. So you start from that basic assumption. Nobody ever addresses it when you're getting trained. It's kind of just accepted and it's invisible. And so you never, you're never aware that you are operating in a particular worldview or a particular philosophy. So when I started encountering this stuff, it made no sense because I was looking at it through a particular worldview, not realizing that that's like a filter and blinders and that there were other worldviews available. This was like just not on my radar because nobody ever teaches mm -hmm. you that unless you take a philosophy course, which many people do not. So um, when I was encountering the evidence, I remember that was part of my confusion. And then as soon as I hit philosophy, the literature on philosophy, and worldviews, um, suddenly everything made sense. And it was like, um, because it's like all these frameworks were made available that explained some of the data. And then you suddenly realize, oh, we've adopted this framework, but it doesn't mean it's the right one. It's just one we've adopted mm. for various reasons. And um, yeah, and it may not be the right one. And you find out, yeah, like every single day there's new headlines <laughs> published in physics and philosophy and cosmology that like this is still an ongoing debate. And so I started thinking, oh, that's really interesting. Like in the sciences, we aren't even aware of any of this debate going on and we operate under mm. one worldview and then defend it mm. to our deaths. And, and, and so. it's a shame because, you know, philosophy 
derives or should derive from science and should be malleable with science and it should be science that shapes those philosophies and um, but we'll get onto that in a, in a bit but i wanted to, to kind of ask immediately when i think of things like um coffee coffee grinds and, and divination of that kind of, of thing my immediate um thought wants to go straight to you know things like this will turn out to be true just on on the laws of you know probability once every so often and is it the case that we don't kind of take notice of those many more that don't hit hit as, as opposed to those that do that's kind of immediately where, yeah. where my thought goes what do you think to that kind of position yeah <clears throat> well that's what i thought too that's definitely what they train us to think and it's true humans have confirmation bias and um you know look look for you remember evidence that supports your beliefs and discard evidence that doesn't um, for sure. And that's why things like tarot or coffee ground readings or psychic readings are, are good for personal experience, but they're not great for scientific evidence. So then that's where you need scientific studies, which there has been a lot of. And so that was the case for me. So I came into this thinking none, no research had been done on this. So I was exploring it just personally, like getting readings and stuff. But then when I started interviewing other scientists, scientists who are doing this, um, like psi or psychic mm. phenomena or intention or whatever mm. research, um, they quickly were like, oh, there's like a hundred years of research on this from like um, hundreds of different labs, hundreds of thousands of participants, like good universities like UCLA, UC Berkeley, Princeton, Duke. Um, and they gave me the references. And so I went to read all the papers. And so that's why laboratory, and it was, there was so much evidence, mm. like way more evidence for that than than some of the other things that we take for granted in science, mm. um, that when I finished reviewing it, I was like, oh, okay, like this is a, just a real phenomena. Like if we use the standards of science that we use in neuroscience or psychology, uh, unless our statistics are all wrong or our scientific methodology mm. isn't right, then you can't, you can't throw this data out yeah. and accept the rest. Yeah. It's either or, right? So um so that's why studies are important uh because it yeah it validates they're not ideal because the laboratory setting is not real life and every time you do an experiment you change something but they're the best that mm. we have right so that's why studies are important because there is scientific evidence for this it's pretty strong um and that's yeah that's why i sometimes at the beginning of this i don't care now anymore but i used to get frustrated like we'd be telling stories because people like stories but then they would Im immediately start debunking it yeah. and then you'd have to be like okay here are all the scientific studies like Indeed. you can go read them if and, you and want I think, yeah i think the only other problem with scientific studies it's good to to know that these scientific papers exist and to cite them as evidence but you must be able to you know ha know how to interpret the data that's given and that's why I turn more to, to the scientists who have trained to be able to to interpret these things, rather than just the odd kind of you know mouthpiece to those who say yes there, there are these studies that prove this and you say well, well do they you know have you do they prove that mm -hmm. that you know that mediumship is bunk have you read them well no but they obviously are because yeah. this scientist said so did he say that or have you just not read them you know so it's important to be able to interpret that data as well as as being able to cite it yeah, yeah. absolutely I mean most most scientists haven't. They're, they're not aware of the research just like I wasn't and it, um, 
well, most of them just aren't aware. Mm. Like they, it's kind of like a common knowledge thing. We just think, oh, it's been debunked, mm. but nobody can cite a study mm. unless you've looked into it. Yes, and I think it was was it Dean Radin, especially from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, that that mentioned it. Might not have been, but I think it was him that mentioned that you know that the results, the stati- statistic results that we've received from, as you said, from the psi phenomena, are you know using the the same statistical methods that have been used to prove other phenomena are more than if not even stronger for psi phenomena than they are for currently accepted paradigms and currently accepted theories yeah absolutely like when i read them i was surprised at like they used some of the same uh experimental protocols that we use in psychology so so it wasn't like I, so that kind of struck me because I thought, oh, I'm going to read this and it's going to be like a really weird study. Mm. And like some of them were really weird and different than what I'm used to, uh, that I'm trained in. But some of them were classic um, psychology, neuroscience studies that they would just flip like the order of something so that it was the time variable. They would flip that. And so, so then, and then the results, yeah, they would use the same stats that we used and you could compare mm. to other regular scientific studies that are published and that's what convinced me and yeah. i thought oh okay so either these are valid um or if you're going to say these aren't valid then you have to say a lot of our, our regular science is not valid too mm. something mm. something has to give indeed and as you say although studies aren't ideal for for kind of understanding the nature of, of phenomena because it's not something that happens in real time it's reduced to a lab it's you know, i suppose the important thing about those studies is it it's able to isolate those phenomena without the confounding variables that are controlled for. So I think the initial importance of those days is to identify that a phenomena exists. And then it's a case of yeah. exploring it in the wild, so to speak, to understand why and how on a broader scale. And it seems that yeah. most people think that because, or I don't even know if it's true, but most people that I've spoken to who are skeptical about psi specifically have said that parapsychology over the many hundreds of years of its existence as a, as a, as a um, as a field of research, hasn't advanced as a science, in which case it suggests it's bunk, so to speak. What's your thought on, on that? Um, I just think there's no funding that goes into it. So, of course, it hasn't advanced. I don't think that's a very good argument. <laughs> that's like, mm. it's not a very um, intellectual argument. Um, no, and I think if you, like there were, in my book, I published or uh, commented on a review that was published in 2018. And in science, when you do a review, it means you take all of the research that's been done, right, in this one field, put it together, and then look at the effect sizes, mm. the statistics, and then you say, is there an effect here or not? And that's, that's how it is. Like in science, you never take one study and say, you have to do like, because of statistics and the way the universe works probability wise you have to do a bunch to say okay there's been 100 studies and then if you show you know like 60 of the 100 show an effect there's probably something there and so in 2018 there was a review published on psi or psychic phenomena and it showed a strong well not a strong effect mm. but an effect that's comparable to um like many other things that we that we in my book i um, compared it so for example some of the effect sizes, I won't, I'm sure people get bored when I say effect sizes, but they were comparable to like what we use in clinical research. So in clinical research, it's like you need to reach a certain effect size for like um, a, a treatment to be taken seriously um, or to be considered clinically valid. And so 
um, they were comparable to those, like to aspirin, to antidepressants, to diabetes medication. Um, when you c compared the effect sizes, they were comparable. So it's it's that. So if you to say that the field hasn't advanced isn't fair. If you took any time to mm. read mm. any of it, like a recent search in Google Scholar, like you would find that review and mm. you wouldn't be able to say that. I think many people who aren't, who aren't familiar with statistical analyses would say, you know, the effect size is what kind of turns them away from it. Because if, say, you have a graph um, on a range of, I don't know, say zero to 100% of whatever, it doesn't really matter, but that the effect that we see in psi research, say, you know, um, the IONS study, I think that's still ongoing, where they were looking for effects of a random number generator or to move a line up. And I can't remember the specific one, but in yeah. other words, there, yeah, yeah. there was, you know what I mean? There, there was an effect, but it was tiny a very small effect you know maybe on a graph from a zero to a hundred percent it would be maybe a three percent movement either way and people would yeah. look at that and think well that's not significant at all three percent movies you know could happen randomly there's no way you could tell um what would you say to to that kind of belief well i would say that that's what that's what statistics are for so so for you for us to look at a data set as a human without math and say 3% is not significant is not a valid way to assess it. You need the math to look at the all the numbers in the data set and the statistics will tell you if it's significant or not. Because it could be that, let me think of a way to explain it. Um, if you have a data set that is so what we call noisy, which means the numbers are all over the place. It's like zero, one, 100, 200, 300, like they're so random. Um, and you have a random data point. When you zoom out, you're like, oh yeah, I mean, all it's all random. This one number, it it's not, it, it fits the data set. It's like, it's not significantly different. But if you if you put it on a graph and all the numbers were like between zero and 50, um, and then you had certain numbers, you know, under certain conditions that were consistently mm -hmm. like 70 or even 200. Um, and then you put it all together and you do the math. You're like, yes, this data set is not very noisy. So under these conditions, when you um, have this effect, it's significant. Mm -hmm. So that's what the statistics can tell you. So as a human, you can't look at something. It doesn't work that way. You have to use the math um, because the math, the stats takes the whole data set into account and says this is unusual this is mm -hmm. not what you would expect mm -hmm. this is not um, a pattern so it's like yeah you have to use the math yeah so i suppose you could say you know that um even though on this particular experiment maybe th um the effect size of moving the line up and down was a, a tiny factor that seemed insignificant but when you take all the studies or, or all the the whole data set of that study together it's the fact that that change was consistent regardless of how small the yeah. effect size was it still suggests that our minds had an influence over the data. Doesn't matter how small it was consistent. Something like that. Right. Yeah. And and in the book I talk about this too. Like effect you would considering the fact that um, you know, if we take a mainstream view, it doesn't appear that people can willy nilly affect matter with their mind, right? Otherwise we'd be we would have the X Men. Mm. Like we would have, we'd be living in a comic book you would expect the effect size to be small, right? Because this does not seem to be something that is a big effect size um, compared to something else that we can easily control, like me lifting my hand, like 100% of the time, you know, in a healthy individual, if I intend to lift my hand and I do it, yeah, that's like a high effect size because 
and obvious to everyone. Mm. But something that's not as obvious, that's not as common, is that's not a strong effect. Um, yeah, you would expect it to be small. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have. I always yeah. I think of it Floating like that. Like we would have accident, yeah. and everyone would know. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder. I'm sure you've stumbled upon the aware studies by Sam mm-hmm. Parnia. What he's trying to do is replicate a near-death experience and perce- or specifically, you know, um, verifiable perception during a cardiac arrest. So he's got targets or he had targets in a, in a room where a cardiac arrest took place. His goal was to have someone come out of their body, see the target, report it. No hits, allegedly, from what we know so far. So, of course, people are taking that. The skeptics are taking that as strong evidence that the phenomena of, of out-of-body perception isn't real or is a, a result of hallucination um, because there were no hits. What are your thoughts on on those results and their, their, um, their relevance to the near-death phenomena slash visual perception phenomena yeah um i mean i think that again that's it that's why it's important to do the studies um we just have to keep that so in near-death experiences i i'm not like super familiar with all the literature but from what i know there there have been studies published but there from my assessment could be a lot more like i think if you were to pull them all together and do a review, like, I don't think there's enough. I hope, but again, I'm not, I hope someone doesn't, I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure, but my sense is that mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there needs to be more research and funding into it because yeah, maybe his study showed that, but you could have another that does. And with experiments, there's a lot of variables, um, you know, from site to site, um, they're different. So again, it's important to do those. Um, and, but it doesn't discount some of the, anecdotal stories that you hear too right um that tend to be that tend to come from near-death experiences which are which are really interesting about people knowing things from other times or locations that they couldn't have possibly known mm-hmm. when they were in cardiac arrest or yeah mm-hmm. so, or even under normal conditions like they're not in that space time and they're reporting something that's verifiably true so yeah i mean i think the research is important um I don't know. I always think, I never think anything is definitive. So it's like, okay, that's what his study showed. We'll just see what more research shows. Mm, indeed. Yeah. One of the um, one of the books that I'm currently going through that I'm meant to for a while, because it's one of those things you heard about, but you'd never really, for some reason, just never started looking at, is um, Julie Byshell's study at the Winbridge Institute, um, which mm. is the quintuple blinded evidential mediumship studies. And that's very interesting because that is bringing something that is, very very in a vast majority considered nothing but fraud and that's bringing it into a quintuple blinded study that's showing statistically significant results in favor of mediumship being a true receiver of of information verifiable information Uh, i'm sure you're familiar with the studies what are your thoughts on them yeah yeah they're 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 very interesting they're well controlled um and again i think that's the kind of research you need for stuff like that like mediumship when I do think it's true. I think that honestly, there's so much going on when you are having a face-to-face interaction with somebody like we, you know, from just a normal neuroscience perspective, you do pick up a lot unconsciously. Um, People give off a lot unconsciously and you pick up a lot unconsciously. So I think there is a lot of that. So in her study where they tried to write, get around that, like um, separating people and no names and, you know, totally, I think it was like the mediums just got maybe on paper, like, um, I think it was just a first name, wasn't it? 
like a first name mm. maybe yeah that was it and then they just give information and then they had like um people unrelated to it judge like the the number of hits versus you know the person getting the reading from the, the person who passed away that they're what was it called discard the deceased i guess they call discard. it yeah, yeah no there you go mm. discard yeah i couldn't remember her term um so i mean i, I you need that kind of of research to to validate this stuff and i mean yeah it was a pretty it was a pretty well controlled study um and i think that again there's not enough research i think on mediumship in that way i think like winbridge is one of the winbridge and ions are starting to do that but there needs to be so much more money put in and because there hasn't sometimes when there hasn't been so there's been a lot of psychic phenomena research right like that has been (laughs) there's a lot of that and that's why um, those studies are pretty good because they've been scrutinized. And so every time they're, you know, over a hundred years, they've been improved and improved and improved to the point where they're, they're really good experimentally sound. Um, and I think for mediumship, I think that they're still, um, improving the protocols. So there needs more money and more research in it. But yeah, I think that that's exactly what's needed. I think it's pretty good evidence because there is, if it's like person to person, you can stretch what they say to make it fit right hmm. so you want something more objective and you know it's no no secret that maybe 95 percent of mediums are doing that you know are, are tricking are tricking you but unfortunately Apparently. you know yeah 95 percent means there's still five percent of a genuine phenomena out there and that you know i just pulled those numbers out, out of the air it's probably a lot Oh, I was going to ask. I was like, where yeah, did you no, get it's, those? I've always been curious. Yeah, I don't know what the actual figures are, but yeah, just for illustrative purposes, even if 95% are total frauds and money grabbers, which a lot of them are, we know that, there's still 5% that show a true phenomena. So that's what we are interested in. And a lot of these are taken out of hand because, of course, a lot of them are going to be more subjective things. You know, I love you, I miss you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, which are good, which are great. But that's that doesn't help understand the phenomena. We need right. the verifiable things. Um, exactly. And unfortunately, I think uh, the, a lot of the, the lack of funding is due to the main mainstream scientific community regarding it as a hundred percent fraud or a hundred percent mistake, you know, mistaken interpretation or whatever. And we'll move on to some of the other evidence. But a name that always comes up in the skeptical community, and I. Uh, this always comes up because it is kind of the most common retort is well they didn't win the james randy challenge they could they should have won the james Randy challenge. some people you ask will say yes i agree it was perfectly you know if the if, if the effect was there they would have won the money others say if you read the contracts no one would have taken him up on it others say different things it depends who you are so what are your thoughts on that as a as a scientist yeah, I think Randy is not a scientist, and I don't think a contest is the way to prove a phenomena. Mm. I, I think, again, it goes back to making um, sound experimental design and a lot of them and to study something over time to prove its um, reality mm. or not. I mean, mm. like to me, the Randy, I just think it's, it's I, like irrelevant. I, mean, I, un- I understand the, the thinking behind it because surely if someone can get evidence from or can just verify some information based on something paranormal, which I don't even like the word paranormal, but they should be able to demonstrate it at least once, you know, in, in, publicly. So I can understand that thinking. I Yeah, I just think they're two separate things. So it's like, as a scientist, like, I would never look at that anyway. And I would never be like, 
at the beginning of my journey, if I was trying to figure this out, I would never go to the, a contest held by a person who's not a scientist and be like, oh, definite, here we go. Mm. Um, someone proved it or did like mm. that doesn't, it's not evidence. Um, it may, it's an, yeah, it's like a nice story. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but it's interesting because it's not just kind of the, the lay folk that bring up the rainy challenge but academics seem to as well i know and you think i know it, it, it makes you think there must be some validity to it if the academics are citing this as evidence against you know but again no. i don't know much about the rainy challenge outside of some people like it some people don't i i think i i i encountered that somebody one of my colleagues i remember was like oh actually two of them mentioned the randy challenge to me and then I went to look into it and I'm like, why are they citing this? This guy's not even a scientist. This is not like, I don't even understand what the point of this mm. is. But, um, you know, and especially because the person who's putting on the contest is a skeptic, like has a belief. I think that's also going to, like, he's going to have confirmation bias. Mm. Like the whole thing is biased. I don't know. <laughs> it, to me, it's very strange that people cite it at all. Um, but yeah, I always go back to, just do the normal science like do experiments mm. i get the like appeal of you know a big challenge and yeah I, sure whatever culturally mm. it's nice mm. that it's a nice fun entertain it's entertainment to me is mm. what it is mm. so we, we mentioned briefly the different philosophies surrounding what all this parapsychology and, and anomalous phenomena of it, uh, anomalous experiences of consciousness phenomena lead to um, what what philosophy do you currently see as the most accurate, I suppose? Um, well, I try to stay open now because I don't really know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think they're all really interesting. I mean, I do think I tend to... I, I've moved away from scientific materialism mostly because it doesn't explain a lot of classes of phenomena like you have to ignore a lot of data to make the model work and um it comes back to that subjective objective divide in like philosophy and science so science you know tries to focus on the objective and so by definition our subjective experiences are ignored um and by doing that scientific materialism works well but you basically have to ignore half of human experience to do that. And so it doesn't make, um, so now I've moved away from that because I'm like, that's kind of dumb. Um, and like, when you think about, like a lot of my neuroscientist friends and I would talk about, you can't measure a thought, but we know we have them. I mean, actually our whole life experience is thoughts, but we can't measure them. Um, and we have no way to compare them like quality wise to each other without subjective experience. And so for me, I've definitely moved away from scientific materialism. I don't know like what I don't, I try not to box mm. in things. I think language and yeah, concepts are indeed. limiting now. So I don't know. I just know I moved away from that because it doesn't explain no. most of the I, I think, I think it's, it's so. difficult to, identify with a philosophy because in reality you know, there's as many philosophies as there are people on the planet regarding the unable to measure thoughts i would imagine one could argue that regardless of not being able to see them quantitatively qualitatively we can 
we can identify them on the physical brain and we can tell show you the markers and we can recreate you know dreams semi accurately based on the the brain readings we get from someone who's asleep you know what what would you say to to that so therefore sorry the conclusion therefore being that we we know that there is a material basis of thought as we can show here um yeah well i think there's obviously a correlation between the brain and subjective experience but um it, I mean, in science, you learn correlation isn't causation, like day one in statistics. So even though we, to get around that, that's how you get the worldview, you, you, the underlying invisible assumption, you just assume it to get around that problem is, oh no, we assume that this physical structure of the brain produces this, you know, subjective experience, um, these thoughts, and we move forward with that assumption. But in fact, we don't know that. And um, I think, I think it was Larry Dossey, Dr. Larry Dossey, who made this, um, I put it in my book, but he he likens the brain to like, um, if it was like a TV, mm -hmm. right? It receives a signal and if the TV breaks or a part of the TV breaks, the signal stops. Um, so I kind of think that we have not disproved that mm -hmm. um, in science as well. Like it's it's extremely possible that the brain is also some sort of receiver and you've uh, there's a lot of um theories being published in peer-reviewed scientific journals um like alternative models of consciousness being published now mm. saying things like that like maybe consciousness is an energy field maybe it's information maybe when it interacts with our physical biological brain you get awareness um so there's these things are emerging and being published mm. and peer-reviewed now so and yeah so i think that I think there's correlation, but there's no there's no um, there's no causation, mm. and that comes up a lot because people again don't they never go be they, because that's just kind of how our, our mainstream culture talks about it too, um, and so you hear people citing that a lot. It frustrates me actually as a neuroscientist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this I behaved this way because my amygdala lit up, and you're like, no, that's, <laughs> no, your amygdala lit not, up because you behaved this way. Maybe is all quote. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing is, we haven't, yeah, we haven't um, uh, determined or discerned the direction of effects. We just know they're correlated. So and that's really all we can say. Mm. Yeah, quite right. And uh, two rebuttals that I've heard to the um, brain as a receiver or reducing valve kind of metaphor is one, but why don't we see, therefore, the you know we would see a physical representation of the con consciousness entry point on the brain which we haven't seen and second well therefore you need to show us how consciousness can exist outside of a physical brain in order to be received by it and i, I can answer the second one quite easily because i'd just say well then show me how a physical brain can produce consciousness yeah i mean we haven't defined consciousness like you know the definition of consciousness is kind of difficult awareness consciousness um we can't even measure that yet so in the brain so much less outside of the brain um but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist there's a lot of things we can't um define or measure properly yet the first one what was it an entry point um it, I, I think it was i can't remember exactly who said that you know if consciousness does exist outside the brain and is received yeah. by it, we should see physical markers of the entry point of consciousness. Okay, well, I don't, that sounds ridiculous. I don't even know what that means. But I will say that um, we don't know many things about the brain. So I think that that's a pretty ridiculous statement to make. But um, 
I think, for example, there's one theory that suggests it's from Hameroff and Penrose mm -hmm. that suggests that oh, the microtubules well. of the mm -hmm. brain are interact quantumly and that consciousness is quantum and that that's how it comes in. So that there's one theory, just one, I'm sure there's others that, um, that there's, there's your entry point microtubules. Mm. That's the, um, orchestrated, I can't remember the full name, but the Orco R theory. Uh, yeah. Orchestrated reduction. I don't know something like that. Yeah. I, I need to understand more about that, but yeah, there are many different, you've got, you know, substance dualism, which is often frowned upon. You've got Orco R, you've got IIT and various other f theories surrounding consciousness that are competing. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. And that part of it comes back to that is like, is is consciousness information, you know, IIT, um, integrated information theory, um, in some ways posits that the more information a system has, the more conscious it is, right? So, and you can measure that mathematically, um, but maybe it's an energy, uh, maybe it's quantum, as the as I mentioned, the Hameroff-Penrose theory suggests. So, like I said, we don't really know. <laughs> it could be multiple things. There's a, it could be energy, it could be information, it could be, I mean, we don't mm. really know. Mm. So what's your current understanding? You know, not that you've probably thought about it much because you're still young like me, but um, what are your thoughts on death? What death means and what is one to expect? <laughs> Let me have some water. This is a question. That... <laughs> it's, it's not a small question. No. Before this whole journey for me, I, I thought you just... Mm go to sleep yeah. and stop existing and i thought that sounds nice um See, that's funny because I, then... I thought the exact opposite i thought that sounds terrifying which uh, is why i yeah, went into I... all this oh uh, yeah mm. I, I didn't have a problem with that um but so i yeah so what was interesting is when i started reading the past life regression literature the near-death stuff like all those um experiences where people you know, under all these very different conditions, they describe very similar scenarios of, oh, I met these guides and we planned my life and whatever they say, which sounds crazy to a scientific materialist, but these stories emerge like from people who don't believe these things, who've never heard these kinds of spiritual frameworks under various kinds of altered states to the point where you're like, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's worth entertaining that that's true, that you continue existing that you plan another life, that you, you know, come to learn lessons. Um, I will say I did a um, psychedelic, um, I had a psychedelic experience last year where I had complete ego death. And was that, I, was that um, dimethyltryptamine, ketamine? Yeah, it was 5-MeO-methoxy. Five, five uh, mm. Yeah, 5-MeO-DMT. And it, I had a near-death experience or I, yeah, I my I had complete ego dissolution, like I, my personality dissolved, and then I became the entire universe, all of space and time, and all of awareness. And it, it was like the, you know, obviously the craziest thing. Um, but I, and I thought I had actually died in the experience. And I was like, Oh, shit, I didn't mean to die. Um, but it was, so when I came back, I felt like, and I had facilitators. So the mm. next day I was telling them, I was like, you guys, it was like I died. And they were like, you did, like in a way, mm. um, not like physically, but your ego dissolved. Like for a second, you didn't exist. And um, you got to see what that was. And it. so I felt like in some ways, 
it scared me though. Um, I know a lot of people come away from experiences like that, like not afraid of death, but I came away like kind of scared. <laughs> I mean, and it was a nice experience. Like I was, I can't, you know, there's no words for this, mm. but it was like euphoric and I was just everything and it was beautiful. Um, but I think when you come back, it's so outside of your normal everyday experience that it shocks you in a way. Like, mm. you're just like, what is happening? Like, mm. how do I get from this to that and that to this? Um, and so, but I do feel, and someone asked me, like, do you feel like you know what death feels like now? And um, and I think I, I guess I do. I mean, who knows for sure? No one knows, of course. It's like the question. But I do feel like that experience is probably what it's like and it was it wasn't awful it was I mean it was beautiful and euphoric and life-changing so in some ways um I, th I think you know, yeah I think going down the psychedelic route of understanding death is difficult because of course you're also working your your brain is also working under that influence so there will be some kind of as you mentioned earlier some sort of noise in the experience that isn't completely accurate to what it would be like at death unless of course you know during death we do have hallucinogenics naturally kind of flushed through our system as a result which is a theory we we don't know um yes. and a lot of people who go under dmt and there are therapies now that include that sort of thing for working through traumas and things um experience the same sort of thing i would say you know i've, I've never done it myself or anything like i'm terrified of anything that messes with my with my mind um but you know anyone that does do that make sure you do it safely under a physician or under a facilitator because for sure recreationally you don't know what's what could happen <laughs> and some very bad things mm -hmm. have happened um so I, I wonder looking at it from kind of a more natural approach to death during hospice care and, and a lot of hospice carers have described oh, people yeah. seeing things you know seeing their loved ones come to them and and you've got things like terminal lucidity and there's so many different things surrounding it yes. so i wonder what your thoughts are on, on that kind of more naturally inevitable experience yeah um yeah there is this one you're probably familiar with it i forget his name though but he is like a physician who works with end of life or something and i think he actually did a study um, or they did a study in a in a home, a hospice, Pete, maybe. Peter um, Finnick? Maybe. I don't <laughs> remember who it was. But um, they, they showed that they did an actual study. like, um, And I think they show – I can't remember the percentage. I'm sorry. This is like the worst. <laughs> I clearly read the study a long time ago. But basically, the finding was that, um, that the nearer that a person got to the time of death the more frequently they reported seeing people in their lives who had passed away um and so you could they you could basically they learned you could predict when someone was going to pass away by the the like more frequently they started mentioning like oh my husband's mm -hmm. here or my daughter came to visit me last night and they were people who had passed away so i think things like that are really fascinating um i mean i really do think i mean i guess i do believe that our consciousness survives death now um I think there's enough evidence mm. that that you can't discount that mm. as a possibility um, if you're being fair. I think to I it, think it's so. difficult to have you know, really read and understood the literature on things like evidential mediumship and very out of body verified phenomena and things like that, and and come away not thinking that we retain not only consciousness but individuality and memory to some degree. 
Um, right. Which again, memory is a difficult one because again, people all point to well, we can see where in the brain that is. You know, new neurons are being formed and pathways are being strengthened. So how can that exist outside of the brain? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think actually we don't really know how memory fully works. That's kind of a misconception. We don't have it all figured out in the brain. There's no like one area. It's actually like spread. Um, it's like a network or, but that's still unresolved. And again, every time people point to the brain, I always say, again, it's just correlation. There's still no proof that, um, again, if you think of it like the receiver, like I said before, mm. um, there's no proof that the wiring um, is responsible for it. Mm. So I also think it's really, I've been thinking about this lady lately. It's so fascinating that like we now have this concept of the cloud, like software mm. in the cloud and stuff. Mm. So um, it's almost like now people can understand like maybe we are like that yeah. where did that idea even come mm. from um but maybe it is that there's it's something stored somewhere else and we access it yeah and that um, comes back nicely to orco r and things like that mm -hmm. mm. yeah exactly are, are you familiar with terminal lucidity as a phenomenon mm -hmm. you are what, what do you think about that because that's very interesting to me especially during cases of alzheimer's and, and dementia and other brain degenerative diseases which is effectively your neurons are breaking apart and that would imply that if we look at it from a physical point of view if consciousness is physical and awareness is physical that would have to include some kind of regeneration toward the end of a degenerative disease in order for that consciousness to come back as it seems to do so what, what are your thoughts on, on eternal lucidity yeah, well, from a neuroscience perspective, um, our explanation for things that we can't explain is always neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. So whenever, um, yeah, so I, like if I step back into my old um, identity and someone presented that to me, I would be like, yeah, I don't know, the brain suddenly rewired itself mm. in some way, miraculous way, and the person, you know, but again... I think, um, you know, I think now with everything I've learned, that may or may not be true. Um, but we have a lot of instances in neuroscience that we can't explain, like people who, with savants, mm. um, people who have knowledge that there's no way, skill sets and knowledge they could not have possibly acquired, mm. like, you know, in, in by like if they're five years old or <laughs> things they haven't experienced that they just know. Um, and also we have cases where like, it's funny, we have all these theories about all the regions of the brain and like, you know, visual cortex does this and like temporal parietal does this. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a case of a person who has like extreme, let's say hydrocephalus, which is like where there's a lot of, um, basically there's like a tiny piece of actual brain matter and their the rest brain is, fluid. is filled with yeah. fluid. Yeah. And, um, and, and then we, but they, function fairly normally or well enough like to the point where we can't explain like oh but they don't have a fully developed visual cortex or they don't have a fully developed amygdala how can they um function like we just those are just mysteries mm. in neuroscience for now and yet usually we just explain it with neuroplasticity which basically means we don't know <laughs> fair enough fair enough um another interesting one that is a kind of often cited as a counter argument to the radio um, metaphor is general anesthesia. 
because people uh-huh. tend to think, well, if the, the consciousness is separate from the brain and is ultimately able to perceive itself by its very nature, why does shutting off the brain with anesthesia render you unconscious? Yeah, because it's like turning the TV off. Mm. <laughs> mm. So again, it's like, you know, as you say, turning off the perceived translation of consciousness, but not the signal of consciousness itself. Right, yeah. There's... um. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just that. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, very simple answered. I'm interested in, I think we're going to see in the next few years some really interesting research come out. I think that, um, so, you know, in, in the literature, altered states of consciousness, so things like hypnosis or meditation or psychedelics or breath work, um, people tend to have these what we call emergent experiences or anomalous experiences or whatever you want to call them uh, more frequently in those states. Um, And I think that with the surge in psychedelic research, um, it's already been happening with meditation research, but meditation research has been so secularized Mm. and so... um, Demystified? Yeah, I mean, just so they could do it, because it's like to get it approved, it had to be that way. So I think but with psychedelics, it's going to be different. And I think that you're starting to see with, for example, the studies that are being done at uh, University College London, Mm -hmm. um, with DMT, where they're putting people into these extended DMT states to kind of map the space, like this alternate reality that they're going to, to kind of answer the question of, is it just a hallucination that they're having in their mind? Or are they going to some space where they're getting, let's say, information that they bring back um, that's verifiable, um, that they would have no other way of knowing? Mm. So they're they're starting to do that and kind of explore, like when people do DMT, a lot of them report fairies, angels, elves, beings. And so and a lot of them sometimes have messages for them or can tell them things that are going to happen in the future or things like that. So they're starting to look into that. And I, I think that what will be, I mean, if I had a wish, like if we could just have funding go into this, I would start exploring um, the space of between like that, like psychedelic experiences or just altered states, but I'm just saying psychedelics because that's, I, what I know is going to start being funded a lot now. Um, but then also people who who are intuitive on their own or have these experiences mm-hmm. on their own um, and starting to map like what is, um, you know, going on energy wise, frequency wise, biochemically, um, because there is, for example, there's a um, there's an effort uh, being led by John, I think um, Chavez, who's like, has an organization called DMT Quest, and it's kind of like this to use DMT as this like um, pathway to explore all these topics of like, we know that we're in a material paradigm, people are going to want to focus on something material. So it's like, let's take a molecule like DMT and use it as a gateway to explore all these things. Mm -hmm. But to start to map that space of, let's just assume that I mean, people are having these experiences. So let's start to map it and see what is the difference physiologically, biochemically, um, and then, you know, start to see if it's verifiable. Mm. And then start to build a theory off of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember the other thing I wanted to mention was you talked about um, the temporal parietal area of the brain. That that kind of made me think, 
what, what your thoughts are on the Olaf Blanke study, if you are familiar with that, that showed um, the out of body. That's right. Yeah, the, the um, it was either the stimulation or the or the um, dorm making dormant the temporal parietal junction. Um, I don't know yeah. much about that, so I was curious from your perspective what you thought about that. Yeah, that was a, um, well, I countered that when I first started looking into this. Yeah, there, oftentimes um, neuroscientists who are not familiar with the literature will cite stuff like that and will say, oh, if you, you like stimulate the temporoparietal junction, you do get these very weird experiences of like people saying they see dead people or see God, or you have a mystical experience or an out-of-body experience. Um, and people will explain like everybody else's experiences mm. with that and being like, oh, maybe you had some like rogue, uh, you know, electric. Yeah, some sort activity. of epileptic kind of effect. Right, yeah. in your temporal parietal mm. lobe. Um, but actually, there's this effort out of Essel the Esalen Institute. Are you familiar I'm with, not. with it? Okay. okay, so the Esalen Institute was this institute in Big Sur, California. It was founded in the like 60s and 70s. It was part of the whole countercultural revolution. A lot of uh, like, um, uh, sorry, transpersonal psychology came out of there. A lot of the early psychedelic research, um, a lot of therapies, like maybe, no, not internal family systems, but like gestalt therapy came out of there. So it was like a hub for mind, body, spirit um, experiences and research. So it's still around today. It's like this really um, iconic, legendary institute. And they have a center for theory and research where scholars get together and they have a, this 20 year effort called, um, oh shit, I'm not gonna remember what it's called, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> survival, it's like SIRSEM, that's what it's called, the seminars on survival. And it's been going for 20 years. It was supposed to be just like a seminar series about evidence for survival of consciousness past bodily death. But they ended up publishing in the last few years, three huge volumes of books, combining all the evidence. Um, and in one of them, the first one, it's called Irreducible Mind. Oh, oh um, and these that, are all... yeah. By yeah, yeah. Kelly, so, Edward Kelly? Yes, mm -hmm. Ed Kelly. And um, uh, yeah, Ed Kripal. Like there's all these um, researchers who contributed to mm. it. it. But in Irreducible Mind, they actually go into excruciating detail. It's a very um, big book. The... Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very... a very chunky book. But they book. go into those, <clears throat> yeah, they go really into those studies and and like into every detail and show that the experience you get from stimulating the temporal parietal junction with like electric or electromagnetic, let's say energy is very different than the experiences you get from people who report them naturally. So they're like, people like to just step back and like thousand foot view, dismiss them or equate them. But they're like, when you go into the details of the studies, they're very, um, very different. Mm. They, they, and it doesn't adequately explain people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And I suppose one final area that's rather important in, in this is I myself am, am not religious in, in any sense. Um, and people seem to often conflate life after death, the, the concept of life after death and uh, spirit, etc., with religious views. Um, whereas I would argue that questions of, of that kind of nature are fundamentally a scientific one, which is why I don't like the term paranormal, because to me, everything that's currently considered paranormal is just an aspect of science and nature that we haven't understood yet. It exists, it's just not well documented or understood. What are your thoughts generally on, I suppose, the religious takes on 
to, to Christianity is the main one over here. So things like heaven and hell or Nirvana or other things mm-hmm. like that versus your approach at it from a scientific point of view. And I suppose the usefulness of, of both approaches. Yeah, I think I definitely agree that it's, I mean, like what we've been discussing here, the consciousness, whether it survives bodily death, whether it's an energy information or or whatever, I think that is a science question that we can, a science and philosophy question um, that we can start to address. So I think you don't need religion for that at all. Um, I think religion serves its purpose, though. I think that, I mean, I think many of us have negative connotations. I don't know. I do (laughs) um, around religion. But I think that it does spirituality, at least for me. Actually, you know that phrase, um, spiritual but not religious? It originated from Esalen. Oh, (laughs) that's interesting. Yeah. So um, because they were... Yeah, promoting spirituality as a healthy, you know, way, like as an integral part mm. of being human. It, it's um, it's very much a part of who we are mm. and has been for since the beginning of the existence of humanity. Um, but religion, right, has, is a totally separate thing than um, spirituality. Yes. It's more about rules and, and, and dogma. In, interestingly, I think, which is an, an un an uncommon opinion is that spirituality for me i believe spirituality is more is close more closely related to science and philosophy than it is to religion no i agree and i think i mean i think religion is useful for a lot mm-hmm. of people otherwise it would have died out mm. but it ser- seems to serve a purpose mm. i so, mean it's fantastic for yeah. the for the sense of community and, and the it, oh, if yeah. if you can you know live off of the the comfort that your life is looked after and that you will go to a better place after that that's 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 fantastic if it works it doesn't work for me i need to understand things and have evidence for yeah. them you know um but certainly yeah. me too certainly if it makes life gives life the meaning then it's certainly very valuable but for me personally it just it doesn't yeah. work you know yeah and i think a lot of people feel that way now because of just like the last couple hundred years, mm. our focus on the scientific mm. revolution mm. and the enlightenment. I think a lot of people feel that way. So, mm. um, but, I, and I think that it's like we threw the baby out with the bathwater. Like we were like, no religion, but then we lost spirituality and meaning. Yeah. And so That's right. it's like yeah. trying to find that balance yeah. now. And, so. and I think, you know, spirituality hand in hand with science and philosophy offer an even greater future for, for you know, our satisfaction. Because I think, Religion offers the the free the comfort of a heaven, but it also includes the fear of a hell. Whereas I think spirituality offers something we would be akin to as heaven, but doesn't include that that negative aspect of it. And that it's ultimately you will go to where you need to be, but the difference right. is, and here's the evidence for it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. Mm. And I needed that when I was. Um, one of my main struggles when I was at the beginning of this journey was that was like, like I said, some people were just okay accepting a mystery or they were okay accepting a belief and I just couldn't. And Mm. it was driving me crazy. It was like mental anguish because I was like, why can't I just believe Mm. it would just be easier, but I just couldn't like if I Mm. needed to have evidence and a lot of it, which is exactly, you know, why you eventually became a scientist because that's the whole you know right. part of being <laughs> human is wanting to know how things work and why things are the way they are and as you know very right, much like yeah. you I, I can't just believe something unless i have reason mm-hmm. to believe it which is nice but it's also 
difficult sometimes, as you say. Yeah, it's personally difficult mm. sometimes. It is, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, would you like to let people know where they can get in contact, find you, what kind of published works you offer, etc.? Yeah, so I have a book called uh, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist's discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe, the longest title ever. Um, <laughs> and you can find links to that on my website, which is just monasobaniphd.com. I write a um, substack. I, I used to write for the Brave New World of Psychedelic Science, but in January I'm tra transitioning to my new one, which is called Cosmos Coffee. No, Cosmos Science and Coffee. It's like so new, I don't even know the name. But there's links to that on the website. 